Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of It's Easy Sun, your life lessons on your journey to your purpose. I, I have another esteemed guest again this week. I keep saying that every week, so please, uh, folks that laugh at me, all my guests are special, and I'm always just so humbled when they, they decide to join and, and come on the broadcast. Today, we have a gentleman who I've, I've watched from a distance. I've met once or twice uh, at various higher education conferences and just listening to him speak, a thought leader, a, a, a multiple time president, um, advisor to presidents, um, just an all around guy that you wanna listen to on topics of higher education, change, transformation, impact, all of the things that quite frankly, we need today. He is a graduate of uh, Indiana University. We'll get into all of those things, but has a career that spans very, very interesting. And he'll be, I know today will be one of those episodes that we will get a lot of feedback on and questions and follow-up. So ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, I, I welcome to the podcast this week, Dr. Charlie Nems. Dr. Nems, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm fantastic. And it's great to be with you and, and to see that you're doing well. I hope that you're adjusting well uh, out in the, uh, in the sunshine state. <laughs> <laughs> I am. It is a sunshine state. The good news is I get to play golf all year round. <laughs> wow, wow. The weather, the weather is such that it's not like Ithaca where we have it for three or four months. Sure. It's sure. 12 months. So I, I'm doing well, doing well. Very good, very good. Well, well sir, as I said at the, at the outset, I'm very humbled that you uh, agreed to join me today because as you know, higher education is going through a transition. We see what's happening all across the nation, the new revenue models, economic models, and things of that nature. I know you're highly versed in that topic, but today what we want to, to do is, is, is learn a little bit about your story. Your story is one that's inspirational to many, and um, I know that our audience will be blessed by, by your, your words and inspiration and wisdom. So if, if, you're, if you're okay, we could just jump right in with the first question, always an open-ended question, and we can get started. So, so who is... Who is Charlie Nems? What undergirds him, his early years, his, his growing up, and what gave him this passion and desire to do what you do today? Well, you know, I'm Charlie Nelms, uh, a kid from the Southern US. I grew up at the height of uh, America's apartheid era uh, in the Southern US, uh, better known as Arkansas Delta, the Arkansas Delta an area about 25 miles west of Memphis, Tennessee, and in a very large family, uh, mom and my dad were subsistence farmers. They bought a little 40 acre farm in 1952, and uh, they 11 uh, kids in my family. And of course, we still have that little 40 acre farm that my parents bought in 1952, uh, as well as my grandmother's 80 acre farm. But there were 11 children in my family. Uh, uh, my parents were uh, literate, but not uh, formally educated, but they were very wise people uh, because they understood three things, the importance of voting, owning land and education. Three things they understood, owning land, voting and education. I've never missed voting in an election. The mule is dead, but we still have the 40 acre farm. Wow. And so I was surrounded uh, by these uh, loving siblings and parents. And, uh, you know, 
school was someplace we went after we finished harvesting the crop. And the crop was cotton back then, okay? And uh, basically they had a split session. And so the white school board, all white people on the school board, all plantation owners, they would literally close the schools such that black people, colored people, Negroes, as we were called then, would chop and pick cotton. And then we would go to school after the harvesting was over. So I never attended school more than four and a half or five months out of any year. Wow. Uh, but I had these wonderful teachers uh, who nurtured me and, uh, and, and, uh, and others in my family and my classmates. And I was fortunate enough uh, to go on and graduate from high school and enroll at the only place I could go in Arkansas to college. And that was Arkansas Agricultural Mechanical and Normal College founded for the education of Negroes. That's, that's what's on the, on the, on the, on the plaque on mm. the front lawn. And now it is known as UAPB, the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. And it is the second oldest institution in the state of Arkansas. Uh, higher education institution in the state of Arkansas. While I graduated from there, had these wonderful teachers who poured in me, who invested in me. And so they instilled in me, uh, as well as others uh, who enrolled there, this whole notion that our job was to do well and to do good. To, to do well and to do good. And anything less was unacceptable. There were no excuses for why you couldn't do a thing and so on and so forth. And uh, so, and I'm eternally grateful uh, to them. And of course I came on uh, later on to Indiana University because black folk had to leave the South in order to go to graduate school, right? right. And so Indiana, Michigan, uh, Columbia, Cornell were places we, NYU, Columbia, where we went off to graduate school. And so Indiana was the place where I came for graduate studies as did many other black people from the South who moved in Wilkerson's book, okay, The Warmth of Other Sons, which is a wonderful book. Mm -hmm. And for people who want to know a little more about the migration, okay, of Black people from South to North to East to West, I would encourage them to take a look at that. Well, enough about that. <laughs> so now you get Charlie Nelms. Yeah. So Charlie, uh, Dr. Nelms. So no, no, I'm, I'm Charlie. One of the things, if you check my birth certificate, it doesn't say anything about doctor. It says Charlie <laughs> Nelms. I'm good with my name. I don't need anything to dress it up or to yeah. dress it down. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> well, well, Charlie, um, thank you for that. But you do know, out of out of respect, I've always had this thing about me that people that have that earned PhD and have done some things, you know, it'd be it's very funny with some people. So thank you for yes. that. I really yes. I really do appreciate that. Yes. So family, eleven kids in your family. That's well, right. And th that whole home dynamic of going to school for four or five months out of the year and, you know, the whole sharecropping bit and all of that. What was the, the your family being so large, obviously played a key role in your development. What, what was family life like? Well, it was challenging. It was very challenging. I mean, you know, it's one thing to be poor. And it's another, it's another thing, well, to be poor materially. So let me make a distinction. Mm -hmm. We were poor fiscally, but we were wealthy in terms of the love and the support and the encouragement that we gave each other. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that was one of the real positives associated with a large family. 
But everyone in my family, all of us had little jobs that we had to do around the house from the time we were four or five years old, including picking cotton. You know, I mean, you started picking cotton at four or five or your chores may have included putting wood on the porch, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or uh, picking up kindling to be able to start the fire in the the cooking stove Mm -hmm. Uh, or pumping water for the for the animals you know we had farm animals and all of that and so we grew up uh with this sense of collaboration and cooperation so i didn't have to get to graduate school if anyone started talking about collaboration strategic <laughs> engagement and all of those kinds of things because in order to survive to survive that economic kind of uh destitution if you will mm-hmm. um uh we had to work together okay whether mm-hmm. it was picking cotton chopping cotton doing homework and so on and so forth. And so I'm defined by my family, very large family, as I said, and I'm the oldest of the surviving siblings now. But of those 11 children, to show you the power of parenting, uh, of our 11 children, nine of us went on to some form of post-secondary education. Wow, wow. Nine of us, okay? From your humble beginnings. From my humble beginnings, our humble beginnings, Mm -hmm. okay? And so you don't have to have a PhD or JD or DDD or anything else in order to support your children. And my parents are, are living a proof of that, as are many other parents, mm-hmm. you know, uh, from, from all around the United States as well as the world. Mm-hmm. So you went on, what was, what was high school like? I mean, even though you went for four to five years, what was that elementary type schooling like? And I would imagine that there was a, where you went to school, there was like a kind of homogenous grouping, if you will. But was that an extension of the family? And did that carry forward given the time in which you um, came up through those ranks? Yeah. So let me say this. So I would encourage you and others who may be listening to this podcast to Google the Julius Rosenwald Fund. Mm -hmm. Julius, R-O-S-E-N-W-A-L-D Fund. Okay. Mm-hmm. Julius Rosenwald was the president and chief executive officer of Sears Roebuck and Company. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he established a Rosenwald Fund because back in the teens and the 20s and the 30s, there was not a formal public school system for Black people. So Julius Rosenwald established this fund and through collaborative efforts with the Southern states, he created over 5,300 rural schools throughout the Southern United States, including my state of Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, so on and so forth, okay? So now that's important for people to know because from the time I was five years old, I started pre-primer. Now you all call it kindergarten now, started (laughs) pre-primer, right? So I had, we had one teacher, one teacher in grades pre-primer through the sixth grade. Now Mm. just imagine that in one room, Wow. And I know these people at Indiana and Cornell and Columbia, NYU, they believe they came up with the idea of a teaching assistant. But no, they didn't. They, the people who came up with that were the te- teachers in these little Rosenwald schools. And so they mm-hmm. used the older children, the sharper, more better, a better prepared students to help the younger children. Okay. Wow. Wow. And so Miss Beatrice Johnson was my pre teacher through the fourth grade, right? 
Mm -hmm. And so, uh, uh, so in that classroom, Ms. Johnson had all of these children ranging in age, ranging in their ability to read, to write, and to do different things. And so uh, many of my, uh, my siblings were there, my cousins were there, my farm neighbors, all of that. Uh, so it, was, uh, I won't, it wasn't easy. I don't want to give the impression that it was easy because mm -hmm. it was very, very difficult, okay? But, you know, when you have hope. Yeah. See, hope is the thing that, that sustained us then, before then, and now. Because if we don't have hope, we don't have, we don't have anything. Right. But if you have hope, you have everything because you can keep on pushing on. And mm -hmm. that's the thing that got reinforced in that little Rosenwald school that got reinforced at Shallow Missionary Baptist Church, right? Mm -hmm. They got re-emphasized over and over again by the Eastern Star, okay? Mm. Uh, by the Masons, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, uh, we just had a lot of support. I guess that's the only way I can put it. And I'm grateful for that. Well, you know, the Rosenwald School, and I, I wrote down the three things your mom and dad said, uh, voting, owning land, and education. So as I listen to you speak, and I, I'm just looking at your facial expressions as you're speaking. It's obvious to me that was a good, a good time in your life. So through high school and, and then on to University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, mm -hmm. um, I did not know the former name. I've always heard of UP, UAPB. Mm -hmm. But what was what was it like there? Is it is it just a continuation of the familial aspects? I'm a Howard grad. HBCUs sure. are in my very DNA. I tell people, um, what was that experience like being at UAPB? Well, it was challenging, uh, rewarding, and affirming. Mm. It was challenging because there's no way in the world I was adequately prepared for college by attending school from pre-primer through high school five months out of the year. So let's just be clear about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there was a lack of preparation, okay? But that lack of preparation uh, 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 was a part of many of the people who enrolled at historically Black colleges in the 50s and the 60s, okay? Mm -hmm. And so the thing that was really good about the UAPB and the HBCU experience was, is that they didn't pretend that we were as prepared as we need to be. So they offered, we didn't call them remedial courses back then, right? Now they've gotten fancy. They call them developmental courses and all of that. Okay? Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. took English 100 rather than English 101 or composition 100 rather than 101. You took math 1410 rather than finite math. Okay? Right, right. But so you, they started us where they found us. Wow. They didn't say, oh, your SAT or your ACT is so low. Oh, you've had these disadvantages. They said to me, Mrs. Shannon, my calculus teacher, she said, boy, you can do it. You can get it. And she tapped me on the head a little bit. <laughs> I didn't know what calculus was because mm -hmm. the highest level math course I had coming out of high school was algebra. Wow. Okay. But by the time I graduated from college in three years with a double major in agronomy and chemistry, I'd had finite math, a brief survey of calculus, and a regular calculus course. Wow. Okay. Quantitative chemical analysis, all of that. But you know why and how we were able to do that? Because mm -hmm. we had these teachers who believed that we could learn and they poured into us. 
what was necessary. I didn't know what a slide rule was going to college. Never heard of a slide rule, right? Wow. <laughs> okay. And so, and so was it was the college a continuation of that? And at that level of support, it most certainly was, but historically black colleges were really, really under, under uh, funded then and now. Mm-hmm. But we didn't let that get in the way of what we needed to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So let me just tell you a little story here. So in Joe Turner's Come and Gone, August Wilson's play, there's this dialogue going on between two carriages, and one says to the other one, man, it's just so hard to find your place in the world. It is difficult. And the man turned, the other one turned to him and said, man, you just have to start where you find yourself. Wow. <laughs> you start that's where so you find yourself. That is and so that's where we found ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's where HBCU started. And coming out of my class and out of UAPB, people have gone on to become physicians and nurses and attorneys and and teachers and social workers and federal government, on and on and on. College presidents, okay? Mm-hmm. Because people believed in us and they affirmed who we were mm-hmm. as opposed to, I, I don't know, imposter syndrome? Hey, man, there was no imposter syndrome. People said, Charlie, you're gonna be all right. Yeah. But isn't, isn't that the case today that our, our HBCUs continue to do just that. And, you know, as you look at the landscape today, you know, I spent time at Johnson C. Smith. I spent time at Morehouse in administrative roles. I I went to Howard, as I said, I was at the UNCF. So I I see the HBCU experience. And in our current dispensation in time, what are your thoughts on what you're seeing now? Just as a, a parenthetical note for us as we're going forward. So I see three things that are really, really uh, important. One is, is that too many African-American people chase the white explanation of excellence. And we measure that excellence, too many of us measure that excellence in terms of SAT scores, ACT scores, class rank, being admitted to uh, three major league Ivy League schools. And you see postings on Twitter and on LinkedIn where someone says, that Jane Doe or Joe Doe got admitted to all of the Ivy League schools and they got X number of dollars in scholarships, okay? I'm happy for them, okay? Mm-hmm. But too much of what I see now is we're saying that excellence is represented by a system that was not created to serve and support us. So no matter how bright we are intellectually, no matter how well prepared we are uh, educationally, when we get there, we feel like an imposter. Mm. Okay. And there's a, 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 a tendency not to be affirmed by that culture that was not created for us. So that's one of the things that's a bit worrisome to me. Mm-hmm. The second thing that, that is of concern to me is that I think we, have, we are losing and have lost some momentum because that culture of caring and support and affirmation we're sort of moving away from that as we have diversified the faculty and the staff at our institutions, Mm. okay? Now, I'm not speaking against diversity. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I am saying that as we hire people and onboard people at HBCUs, we need to be very clear about what our mission is Mm. and what we 
expect from our students, what we expect from our faculty, what do we expect from our administrators and staff in terms of number one, the number one goal and role is to support students to ensure their success. Right. And so I think there's a need for us to keep emphasizing that within the HBCU environment. And so that's, that's the second thing. And the third thing is, I think that <clears throat> there is, it's important for us to be, I don't want to say, I'm not arguing that we should be so intrusive as to uh, undercut people, but I think that we need to be willing to say to students, here's what you need in order to be able to compete successfully in a global workspace. Mm. Here's what you need to, to be able to do in order to succeed in graduate school, whether that be at Howard or at Hampton or at Harvard or at Hostos, whatever, you know? This mm -hmm. is what you need. And we need to emphasize that the students, we need to make sure that they understand what the expectations are and that we do everything in our power to help them to meet them. Okay? Yeah. And I think that many of our HBCUs have held true to that, that mission, that vision, that focus, and I encourage them to continue to do that. And for those who are pursuing a higher rank or a different classification as an institution, I want to encourage them to make sure that they don't forget the, that there's not just one mission, there are multiple missions. Right. Number right. one, overarching one, is to ensure student success. Yeah, student success. And we're going to get to that because you, you have a, a stellar career uh, that, that, that spans higher education. And I definitely would like to get into that. But your time at Indiana, I'm still blown away by the fact that you got into college, as you said, not fully prepared, but you graduated in three years in agronomy and chemistry. Yes. That are heavily what I would consider STEM fields, if you will. Mm -hmm. how, how did you do that, number one? And number two, how did that prepare you for graduate studies at Indiana? So couple of things. One, I was student body president at Arkansas AM&N or UAPB. I was student body president. And so I was protesting left and right. Okay. Because I mean, in lots of ways, see, in local preventives was really a big thing when I was in college. They had rules for everything. A curfew for women. Uh, when lights had to be out, you had to go to chapel. And we looked at those things as really being negative. Mm. And we protested against them. We protested against the food in the cafeteria, okay? <laughs> the lack of recreational opportunities and facilities and all of that. And we protested against the administration without fully recognizing at the time that the system in place was put there by legislators in Little Rock, Arkansas. So no matter how much we protested against the president and his, in this case, his leadership team in Caldwell Hall Auditorium, that didn't change the historic facts of the cumulative effects of historic underfunding. So I became involved in, student government, in the student movement and all of that, okay? But mm -hmm. one of the things that I did, I had this faculty member, Mr. Ora Holiday, who said to me, he said, Nelms, you can't do everything. So figure out what you can do and leave something for someone else to do. <laughs> and he said, now, don't you, don't you flunk out of college here trying to, change, uh, uh, trying to change politics in the state of Arkansas. Do what you can. He said, get your work done, okay? And then move on. 
And I listened to that man. And because of him, I did not drunk out of college. Mm. But when I didn't go to class, Miss Shannon wouldn't, she'd send me a note, okay? Or call the residence hall. We called them dorms back then. Called the dorm to find out what was going on. And so saying all of that, I worked hard. I had a strong work ethic, as did my classmates all around me. We encouraged and supported each other. And so uh, I had only taken a standardized test twice by the time I graduated from college. One was when I took the ACT in 1965. And the other time was when I took the director record exam in, uh, in 1969. Hmm. Okay? And uh, I had a very low score in the graduate record exam. Indiana University uh, accepted me on probation with the understanding that I needed to make a B average. And if I could make a B average, I probably should have been in graduate school anyway. And of course I blew the top off of that. I made all A's. Okay? Hmm. So I came in with the lowest uh, uh, score, SAT score, not SAT, GRE score of my cohort in 1970. And by the time I finished my doctorate, I had the highest uh, score of anyone in my cohort who took the qualifying exams. Wow. And the moral of that story, the moral of that story is not that I'm so smart. The moral of the story is, is that if you have a commitment to achieving your vision and your dream, And if you're willing to work hard and surround yourself with people who encourage you and support you and tell you what you need to hear, even when you don't want to hear it, and you stick with it, okay, you can succeed and excel. I don't bury my story under bush. I want students to know my story. I want them to know what my ACT and my GRE scores were. I want them to know that I was admitted on probation because what you are now isn't what you're capable of becoming. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the moral of that story. And I had good support from uh, uh, liberal white people at Indiana University, as well as a handful of black people who were on the faculty and staff as well. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, and I took advantage of those opportunities. Yeah, so one of the things that, it it keeps coming up in in the stories that you're raising. What What do you think is the importance of having mentors? No substitute. There's nothing, there's, I can't know, I'm not aware of a single adequate, a good substitute for a mentor. But there's a difference between a mentor and a role model. See, we used to talk about role model. Yeah, yeah. So role models are people that you want to be like. You may not have any relationship. They may not be pouring anything into you, okay? But they're just out there doing their thing and you are just an observer. But when you have a mentor, Mm-hmm. What you have in a mentor, you have an encourager. You have a person who's empowering you. You have a person who's sort of pulling you along, picking you up, okay? Putting you in your place when you don't want to be told something, right? <laughs> right. And so a mentor is someone who's actively engaged with you on your journey to pursue and achieve the dreams or the goals and objectives that you've established for yourself. I can't think of a... I honestly cannot think of an adequate substitute for a mentor. The mentor is someone who will speak on your behalf when you're not even in the room. Yeah. And they will stand, they will say, Gerald is a good guy. He's a really sharp, top-notch financial person. I would encourage you to check him out. Yeah. That's that's what a mentor does, as opposed to saying, oh, Gerald is a terrible person, blah, 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 okay? They pick us up rather than put us down. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, that is so true. But, you know, you just also said something in your last story that resonates with me. I know it resonates with others because you are you are someone that speaks to a lot of people. Um, you are encourager in chief. That's what I'll just give you that title, encourager in chief. Mm -hmm. But you just shared some of your failures mm -hmm. or your setbacks. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people have a hard time doing that because they are afraid to be vulnerable. And in the in the space in higher education where you have so many young people looking up to you, mm -hmm. you know, why is that? What it, it, does that take away from the authenticity of a witness? Mm -hmm. Because you are afraid to show others that you know you might not be all that they think. Mm -hmm. You know, unfortunately, we have allowed ourselves over time, when I say we, I'm talking about many African-Americans in this particular example I'm gonna use. We've sort of come up using education as a divider, as a distinction between people, mm. okay? Mm -hmm. And we understand that people who have more education tend to earn more money, they vote more, they do more service work and so on and so forth. But that doesn't mean that those who have less formal education whether it be my parents or someone else's parents, that they were any less committed, okay, to the welfare and the well-being of our people. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that some people had greater opportunities than others, and the circumstances were such that they could take advantage of them. So unfortunately, I think we use education as a divider, as a, di as a way of dividing people oh. in groups, one group here and another group there. And, and that's what I worry about uh, uh, and what I see in some instances where people have, see, I think you can move to the suburbs without abandoning the neighborhood. Wow. And the people who reside there, okay? Wow. And so I think some people are fearful of being vulnerable. And so they will say, I am Dr. Charlie Nelms. I am Dr. So, which is to say, I have made it, I worked hard, I got this thing. I understand that, okay? But the most important thing, I had a young brother come to my house yesterday and I gave him a bunch of neckties. He said, people don't even wear ties anymore, Charlie, you know? But he said, and he's, he works for business school, right? So I gave him a bunch of ties. <laughs> and I said, brother, you take these ties and you do whatever you want to with them, wear them when you want to. And I'm not advocating that you have to wear a tie every day, okay? But some of the things that others can do, you can't do. Okay. And so you need to, you need to have a, a kind of presence about you. Okay. That is recognized and reinforced and rewarded, unfortunately. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, but, but I, I, I told him my story. I tell these young men and women, my story as a means of empowering them as opposed to exalting myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want yeah. to empower and encourage rather than exalt. That's why I say you're the encourager in chief, because I've, I've watched and listened to you over the years and you've always had a, a, a word of encouragement or a perspective that people my age coming up need to pay attention to. But I, I want to pivot a little bit. So Indiana University, you go to grad school. Now, when I first heard of you and I met you via Anthony Ray and the HBCU network, I don't know sure. if you remember, that's when I first yeah. met you. Sure. Um, what was it that drove you to chemistry, agronomy? You've had to have had a career, but you're known as a, a college president. 
And I would say in some spaces, the advice and counsel you continue to give, I'd say you are dean of college presidents. What, what brought you to that um, career path, if you will, or, or, or what happened from Indiana on up? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So when I went off to college, um, um, I didn't know much about majors and careers and all of that kind of thing, but a really uh, chief influence for me, a major influence to me, for me was my agriculture teacher in, in, uh, in high school, Mr. Milton Moselle who was just a few years younger than, uh, than, than me. And he, his first job at my high school was the only job he ever had, okay? And that was teaching agriculture. And so my plan was to go to college and major in agronomy so I could work for the U.S. Soil Conservation Service. Mm. U.S. Soil Conservation Service, that had been my plan. And so I did this double major in agronomy and chemistry and I was set to take a job with the, uh, with the government, soil conservation. Um, and there's a little war that was going on around that time called the Vietnam War. Mm. Okay? And of course, uh, I had a low draft number. So if I had taken that job, it's almost a certainty that I would have been drafted and would have been sent to Vietnam as were many of my classmates and others. And so having been student body president, the college president, Lawrence A. Davis Sr., um, um, worked with my draft board and got me a, um, a deferment. Mm -hmm. And I ended up working as ombudsman for student affairs. It didn't say ombudsperson, it was called ombudsman for student affairs. Mm -hmm. And since I'd been student body president, I had a good relationship with students as well as with the administration to try to solve problems. I had a reputation for problem solving. And so by the end of that first year, I knew that I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to go on to graduate school and pursue a career in higher education. And when I told the president, Dr. Davis, that I wanted to be a college president, he looked at me and gave me a big smile. And he <laughs> said, boy, you can do it. He didn't say, what do you think, boy? What do you think? And he said to me, if you want to do it, you need to go north to graduate school. And I ended up at Indiana University. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, I did internships of various kinds and, uh, and that kind of thing, but I had good support here and uh, went off to work for the City University of New York, Lehman College, the year after the open admissions experiment was put in place. Mm -hmm. And uh, the person who hired me had a requirement that if you didn't have a PhD at the time, you needed to be enrolled in a doctoral program. So I ended up going to Teachers College, Columbia University on a Ford Foundation fellowship. Okay, wow. so wow. the point I'm trying to make is, is that I had these people in my life, my college president, my dean of students at Arkansas, Pine Bluff, okay, the people at Indiana University knew the people in New York, the people in New York knew the people someplace else, okay, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so I was able to take advantage of that, and people believed in me, and it was at the height of attempts to try to integrate American society, and to be candid with you, I was one of the beneficiaries of a great experiment. And so what I tried never to do is to ever forget that. Mm. I know doggone well Charlie Nelms didn't get here on his own. Mm. Okay? I didn't, you didn't, and all of these other sisters and brothers, no matter what their positions might be, no one got there on their own. We didn't do it. Okay? So that's why I keep giving back. That's why I keep giving back. And I think that 
as a college president, university administrator, you have the opportunity to influence. You don't have a lot of power, but you do have the, 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 the power of influence. Right, right. Yeah. But you have, you have left your mark everywhere you've been. University of Michigan. Um, I forgot the campus that Flint. you were. University of Michigan, Flint. Flint, you were at Flint. But you, you, you left your imprint there. And then you went on and the NCC, North Carolina Central is where sure. I really got a keen interest. Cause you know, as I said, HBCUs sure. are in my DNA. Sure. But that required leadership, that required a transition as a president of two, an HBCU, a PWI. But when I hear you speak now, you speak across, you speak about leadership, you speak about presidential hiring, presidential coaching, mentoring, as you look, look at the landscape today and, and the young brothers and sisters coming up or young people in general, mm -hmm. um, how, do you, how do you perceive the current wave, if you will, in terms of economic models and what the skills a president needs to have? Because that finance and accounting now is just as heavy for a president as it is fundraising. Sure, absolutely. So Gerald, here, here's what I would say to you. And so um, let, let me tell you another little story here. Mm -hmm. And so I became a college president at 39. Okay. Wow. I didn't at know a that. Wow. At a PWI. And there was a president of the system who appointed me. And there was a lot of pushback from the faculty saying that the university wasn't ready for a black president or black chancellor. His response was, if I wait for you all to be ready, there will never be one. Wow. Wow. That person was a mentor, you see. He had been mentoring me, helping me to prepare for that time when he would make that appointment. And he stuck with it. He made the appointment and did everything he could to be supportive of me. Okay. What I have learned over the years from Indiana University Richmond as chancellor to University of Michigan Flint to vice president of the Indiana University system and then to North Carolina Central, I've learned basically three things. One, that leadership, that some universal aspects of leadership. And it doesn't matter whether you're whether you are provost, whether you're president, whether you're chancellor, whether you're CFO, there's some university, universal aspects of leadership. Number one is the ability to think critically and analytically. Mm -hmm. Number two is the ability to communicate at an interpersonal level, as well as a written level. And then finally, the willingness and ability to listen. Okay. Mm. And then the third thing is, is that is that it's not the breadth of your vision, but it is the focus of your vision. Not the breadth of your vision, but the focus of your vision. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't care. So I have this, this camera on our cell phone, right? Mm -hmm. No matter what kind of camera you use, if you don't focus, you're going to get a lousy photograph. Right. Wow. Yes, indeed. No matter how many goals, objectives, and priorities you have, if you don't focus, you're not going to arrive at your destination in terms of what you're trying to achieve for the institution. So this whole notion of universality of leadership skills and whether you're in corporate or whether you're in a global space or whether you're in an NGO space or whether you are in a higher education space, there are these universal skills that you, that you really, really need. 
And so that is one of the things that I, I, I try always to remember. This, the, another thing is, is that I think leadership is about telling a compelling and an authentic story. The best presidents, college presidents that I've known are people who really know how to tell a story. And they can tell that story so, so, so well that they inspire and they encourage. They can tell that story so well that it will end up generating the support that's needed by the institution, whether it's from a private donor or whether it's from a philanthropic group of whether it is from a governmental body, okay? Mm -hmm. And I won't start naming people, but I'm just gonna name several people that I think really told. If you look at Howard University, over the years, they have had really effective storytellers. Mm. Okay? Yeah. If you look at a Morgan State, okay? If you look at uh, uh, a Xavier, if you look at a Dillard, if you look at a Spellman, okay? These places have had in North Carolina, they've had wonderful storytellers. Yeah. Compelling storytellers, mm -hmm. such that it encouraged and empowered and inspired students, faculty, staff, donors, supporters alike. So I'm not saying those are the only ones that have had right. good storytellers. I'm just citing those. Hampton is another good example of really longtime uh, president who told an effective story, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at any rate, um, um, that storytelling piece, I think, in an authentic kind of way, and that focus, I think, are all things that, uh, that are very important. And those things are transferable across the, the, the landscape of higher education, whether you're at a community college or four-year institution or research one. Mm, yeah, yeah. So as, as, as you, you just mentioned a couple of good schools. Um, sure. I have been very fortunate to have been at Johnson C. Smith and Morehouse as sure. an administrator. Uh -huh. And um, you are exactly right. But what, I, what pains me sometimes, because I've been at an HBCU, I've been at a PWI as an administrator, I've been at an Ivy League, and now I'm at an institution that's the second largest in the country. Mm -hmm. And as I look, I, I, I just wanted to say I agree with everything you said about the university, versatile, universal nature of leadership. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the landscape today, not everyone is, is getting it. So mm -hmm. in your humble opinion, presidential preparation today, mm -hmm. so people can, can see the uh, experience the successes you have had or Norm Francis or, or someone like that, what are some of the things that you think are key for them to be focusing on as they're coming through sure. to have that leadership kind of acumen, if you will? Sure, that, and that's a really good question. Uh, uh, and I think it's really important, while I've been talking about the personal attributes and aspects of leadership, there are some technical things that people really need to know. Yeah. Okay. And one is, is, is finance. And you can't, in other words, you don't have to know everything there is to know as a college president about finance, but doggone it, you need to know which questions to ask. Right, right. You need to know the questions to ask of your CFO and of those people in your internal accounting area. You need to know the questions to ask, okay? Mm -hmm. And you, you gotta know how to read, you gotta know how to read, um, uh, you have to understand 
some basic accounting. Because if you don't, somebody can come in and sell you anything on a good day or bad day. Okay? Yeah, yeah. You really need to know where the money comes from and where it's going. Yeah. Okay. You need to know um, um, how cost, what does it cost you? A lot of people, a lot of institutions have 40, 50, 60 different programs. You don't need 40, 50, 60 different programs. If you look at the really good schools, the small schools, for example, they have some key, a dozen or so really solid programs. Mm -hmm. They don't jump out there trying to become universities offering doctorates and this, that, and the other, master's degrees. They stick with what they do well. Right. Okay. They really stick with it. And when I talk about schools, I'm talking about HBCUs, PWIs, HS, they stick with what they do well. Okay. Mm -hmm. As mm -hmm. opposed to trying to spread out and sprout out. So you need to know what it costs to deliver a baccalaureate degree, whether it's in accounting or whether it's in public administration. Okay. You need to understand your discount rate. So yes, you enrolled 500 more students, but how much money did it cost you to enroll the 500 more students? What are the long-term consequences associated with it and so on and so forth? So you really do have to understand finance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No question about that. You need to understand pedagogy, learning. Mm. You, so when people come to you and say, we need a new building, you need to say, what's the relationship between this new facility that you're advocating for and how it's going to impact the student experience. Right. And how does the student experience then influence persistence and graduation rates? You, you follow what I'm saying? So yeah, that I, I agree. You're, you're, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> so, so that's what I'm saying. And mm -hmm. uh, so one thing for sure, one thing is for sure, there is no such thing as a neutral decision when it comes to finances or career. There are no neutral decisions. There are consequences associated with it. And you really need to understand what those consequences are, long-term and short-term. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Wow, that's powerful. Because, you know, uh, Charlie, I almost called you Dr. Nail. No, no, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> I will tell you that um, the wisdom that, that I've always heard you espouse on various programs and settings um, resonates with me as a young finance professional that has been at both um, both HBCUs and PWIs. We have about 10 minutes left, sure. believe it or okay. not. Okay. I, I want to pivot back to you as a leader of universities. Mm -hmm. And when you're a president, you're actually overseeing the futures of young people. Mm -hmm. Um, you're responsible for educating them, growing them, maturing them in some ways, and launching them into their futures. You started out earlier in this conversation talking about the word hope. Mm -hmm. If you had your druthers and you could wave a magic wand and trying to see where our young people are today, given our dispensation in time, coming out of COVID, the job market doing what it's doing, all of these things. What are some words of hope and inspiration and encouragement would you have for such young people? Sure. So before the encouragement and focus for young people, let me say this. Here's a word, encourage, here's an encouragement I have for people who are leading institutions or major parts of a university. 
for college. And that is make sure that you're a lifelong learner. See, a lot of people get a degree and they stop reading. Mm. A lot of people get that degree in the position they want and they stop looking for opportunities uh, um, um, and examples of success and excellence in other environments and taking what they can of that to help drive what it is that they're trying to achieve. So this whole notion of lifelong learning is really important. And what I see with a lot of people is they confuse having a degree with being educated. Mm. Okay. So mm -hmm. that's just one little piece that I have for those people in positions of leadership. Don't, don't discontinue the practice of going to conferences. Go. Okay? Yes. Don't read what someone else is saying only. You write what needs to be heard from your perspective. Okay? So that's one little word. So, but for students, I would say to them, be a lifelong learner. That's number one. I'd say that. Secondly, is to understand the global workspace, really understand it and get out of your comfort zone. Get out of your comfort zone. Do that international, that study abroad. Participate in that service learning project. And even though it may not appear to have much, some of the things you're asked to do may not have, may not appear on first view that relate to your major. Okay, again, you're seeking an education, not just a degree. Mm. Education is more than a credential. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, the second piece that I, third thing I say to students is focus on entrepreneurship. Mm. I think one of the big mistakes that we have made as a higher education enterprise and as an HBCU community is that we focused a little too far on the side of encouraging people to get a good education and go to work for somebody else. Right. And what we need to do is to spend more time focused on helping people to use their knowledge, their skills, their commitment, their all of all of the things that they have to become creators of opportunities for others. Whether it's in finance, whether it is no matter what it is, okay? And so I would love to say to students Go off and do that internship. Learn all that you can with the idea of someday you will be the entrepreneur and yeah. you will be the person hiring four or 500 people or 200 or 20 or whatever that number is. Mm -hmm. okay? Get out of your comfort zone. Don't view your degree as anything as being educated, but rather as a step in route to becoming educated with a full understanding that you won't ever be fully educated because there will always be more to know than you know. Right. And right. keep pursuing that. The entrepreneurship piece, the global understanding, the ability to work with people of other ethnicities and races. Okay. We focus on this diversity to one. We focus on diversity as though it's about white people. Diversity, true diversity is about all of us. Okay. Yeah. And we need to be a part of that as well. So it is not somebody working some magic to us, on us, for us but it's our ability to work and interact with all kinds of people. It's not just the ethnic piece, there's a gender piece. There's just on and on. So I can go on and on. Yeah. It's, glo it's global. Yeah. It's global. And the final thing I would say to people is, young people especially, is time is your most important asset. Use it wisely. Once, you've used, once it's gone, you can't reclaim time. Yeah. 
Now I know they moved the clock back last week. <laughs> okay, they moved, but it didn't. It didn't give us twenty five hours. We're right, still the same twenty four. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, 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 Charlie, let me ask you. I want to ask. I got two more questions. Okay, and I'll be short. I'll give some. Yeah, no, no, that's no, that's this is great. No, don't worry about the time. Our producers yeah. will make it. We, well, you know, I, um, Anthony will work something out for us. Okay, but. Given all that I've seen you do, and, and I see you on social media active and, and still doing your thing, what's next for, for you, Charlie? What's next? You know, what's next for me is to stay as healthy as I can, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Just stay healthy, okay? Mm. Self-care, that's the other piece I said again, self-care. You're the only one you have. Take care of yourself. <laughs> that's <And> so true. <laughs> prioritize yourself in the whole thing. So what's next for Charlie now? is to do everything I can today while I can to make the world a better place. That simple, but yet that broad, mm. okay? And, and I think the thing that I know I will always do, I will always be about the business of encouraging other people to run a race, run it well, and to look back without having a lot of regrets about, you know, uh, about how you tried to make the world better. And mm. that's, that's the takeaway from all of those people who poured into me, including my mother, my father, those teachers in the little Rosenwald School at UAPB and all of those places, okay? Uh, but every day I try to do something worthwhile. Yeah, and I, I, I do have to get a copy of your book. Sure. Uh, I, I definitely want to read that. And I now see you have a website, charlienelms.com and yeah. you're, you're doing your, your, your various things there. But what I do for all my guests is I just leave the end of the program or the last four or five minutes we have, sure. just turn it over to you to say, are there any, is there anything that's on your heart or your mind, given this conversation today, walking through your early years and your career, a stellar career, I might add, is there anything that you'd like to share that I haven't brought up by way of a question? You know, Gerald, thank you very much. I've enjoyed being uh, on your show. And I want to tell you, the first time you and I met was a PNPI initiative, uh, Hispanic yeah. initiative, way back when, sponsored by, I want to say, the Kresge Foundation. It was, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing. You, yeah. you, that's, that's it. Yeah. So <laughs> that, that would have been the first time we actually met. But I followed you very closely and been continuously impressed uh, with your work and, and the contributions that you are making, have made, and sure will continue to make. And keep inspiring young people. I mean, your podcast is a wonderful one. So here's what I would say to all of us, is that our long-term success as a people is inextricably linked to each other. Mm. So while you talk about my accomplishments and I talk about your accomplishments and we talk about other people's accomplishments, it's really the interdependence of all of that, each on each other, and the collaboration with and among uh, uh, each other. And so, and I would just say to us, never forget that. You know, uh, we are only as strong individually as we are collectively. Mm. I mean, I really believe that. In other words, it's not enough for you to be CFO or for me to be a college president or someone else to be a college president. The point is, what are we doing to make sure that we are moving all of us? Mm. 
So yeah. there's this, this interdependence, if you will. And then the second thing that I would say is, is that I really want to see us work more collaboratively across the HBCU landscape, especially, okay? There's just so much we can learn from each other. Some of us have law schools, some of us have business schools, some of us have nursing schools, some of us have, you go on, medical schools, you go on and on and on. But the, what I'd like to do is to see more collaboration as opposed to competition. And rather than singing the praises of who's rated number one HBCU in the country or the number two HBCU, that we say, what are we doing individually and collectively as institutions to advance opportunities for our people? What are we doing to be the incubators of hope? Mm -hmm. Oh, incubators. the incubators of hope, mm -hmm. not just for individuals, but for entire communities. Mm -hmm. What are we doing to transform the communities around us and of which we are a part? So we have our institutions rising up, but we have gentrification taking over our communities and leaving us behind. Mm -hmm as an example. So yeah. how can we use the institution as an incubator of hope and opportunity and community revitalization? Yeah. So that's what I would really like to see more of. And, um, and again, finally, I want to see us get vaccinated. I just want to see more black people, brown people, historically disenfranchised people getting vaccinated. Yeah, um, I saw your last posting um, sure. uh, the other day, sure. and very pointed, very very pointed yeah. statement. Yeah, but you know this 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 issue is going to is a is a divisive one. So yeah, when when I when I listened to you, I said you know there goes Charlie again. Yeah, putting his voice to to things that are are deep in his heart and his conviction, and that's that's one of the things I've always admired about you in terms of your care for people, regardless of race, color, creed, ethnicity, you always are speaking to try to get us to our common humanity, if you will. And I've always, I've always um, admired that about you, sir. Thank really, you. really have. Thank well, believe it or not, we're at an hour, and I told you it would run very, very sure. quickly. Sure. But I want to say to you, sir, thank you for, I, I am deeply humbled that you you accepted to say yes, you would join, join me on this podcast as we continue to share with people and try to inspire people and let people see the lived experiences of others they might see on the television, on social media, uh, and hear about them, but to actually hear their story. So from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for joining joining me today. Thank you very much, and all the best to you and your family in the, in the days ahead. Thank, thank you, Charlie. Thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've just heard from Dr. Charlie Nems, Charlie, more affectionately known. And I hope something was said here today or shared that will give you some perspective on your station in life and how you can get to that next station. Because remember, sometimes we get the blessing and we settle for the blessing, but we forsake our purpose. So until next time, have a great week. Remember, this is It's Easy Son, your life lessons on your journey to your purpose. Take care and God bless.